Holy God, open our eyes to see how wealthy we truly are. Lord, open our eyes. Holy God, open our minds to reconsider what treasure truly is. Lord, open our minds. Holy God, open our ears to hear the cries of our brothers and sisters in need. Lord, open our ears. Holy God, open our hearts to your vision of our future. Lord, open our hearts. Holy God, open our hands that we may give generously to others as you so generously give to us. Lord, help us to see how rich we truly are, both in material possessions and in the blessings you shower upon us each day. May we, who are rich, learn to share what we have with others. Help us to find abundance in our willingness to give so that we may begin to live a life that is truly never-ending. Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. Tell the people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous, and to share with others. When they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way they can take hold of what is truly life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So you know they say, nothing depresses the attendance numbers like letting the associate pastor preach or doing stewardship. I'm glad to see you are all here today. <laughs> we, we are embarking on our stewardship conversation. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the generosity that God has bestowed on us and the response that that ought to call forth from God's disciples. We are following closely along a, a book called Extravagant Generosity by Robert Schnazy. It's a series of devotions that comes out of his work on the five practices of fruitful congregations. Yes. Uh, and when he starts to talk, he talks about stewardship in kind of four ways, and the first one is that you take an EKG. Some of you may have had an EKG. It's a heart test because ministry flows from the heart. Now when I read that, I immediately thought of the closest story I know of ministry and hearts. See, um, I pulled this picture off my friend's Facebook page. This is from a friend of mine, David Horton. He was ordained with me this year. Well, he was sort of ordained with me this year. Um, see, on the day of ordination, David got food poisoning. And so he felt awful all day, and he was sick, and he was in and out, and then we put him in a polyester robe, 
and shoved him in a giant ballroom with about 500 other people, and then they turned the air conditioner off. So if you've ever had food poisoning, you can imagine what might have happened next. Um, David, like a good Methodist, stood up to sing the hymns lustily and fell over, passed out flat in the middle of the service. He had to be carted out by emergency professionals, and his wife, who's also in our ordination class, went with him very fretfully, and, and we didn't see him again that evening. And they say that when he woke up a few minutes later, the thing he was most worried about was that he wouldn't get ordained because you have to be ordained during annual conference. So the bishop came to the room where they had him hooked up to the IV and to the EKG machine. And she and a couple of others laid hands and ordained him. And he asked the EMTs if he could have this readout of his heart the moment he was ordained. Now, I did tell him, you can't tell if your heart is strangely warmed on an EKG readout. <laughs> but nonetheless. So for him, there will always be this reminder that his ministry in some way flows from the heart. I think it's a good place to start. You know, anytime we go into the doctor for a checkup, what's one of the things they do? They listen to your heart. Sometimes when we don't feel well, we check our pulse, or if you're a runner, if Bonnie Humphrey was here, you know, you check your pulse to see how you're doing along the way. Our heart is often a check-in for our health overall. Generosity, too, is a check-in on our spiritual health. And I want to be careful that we think about it like that. It is not a benchmark. It is not a thing to check off the to-do list. But it does give us some indication of where we are in our walk with God. So some of our conversation over the next couple of weeks is going to be about where you are in your discipleship path and how generosity can give you a clue into what might be next for you. Now, one of the reasons that we joke about the attendance numbers always going down when you go to talk about stewardship is we don't like to talk about money in church. We just don't. It makes us a little uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to be up here doing it. You can ask first service. It was rough. <laughs> But the truth is that, that money was one of the things that Jesus talked about the most. He talked about it more than he talked about prayer, more than he talked about adultery. He really was concerned with the way that money and generosity marked people's role and relationship with God. It's not the sum total of who we are, but it's an indicator. And the truth is that in this country, we are frequently financially anxious. Does that feel right? Every year, Gallup actually takes a survey. They ask seven questions about finances and financial anxiety. And, and if the graphic was working, it would tell you that um, last year when they took that survey, in three out of seven questions, 50% of people said they were very or moderately worried about the, that state of their finances. They ask about things like saving for retirement, mortgages. 50% of people were financially 
anxious. And that's actually an improvement over 2008, 2009, 2010. We are a financially anxious people. And I'm not entirely sure that we should be. I like to play the game with youth when I was a youth director, if the world were 100 people. It's a fun way to kind of see how things are really distributed. So if the world were 100 people, 60 of them would be Asian, 15 would be African, 11 would be European, 14 people in that village of 100 would be from Canada, the U.S., Mexico, Central America, and South America. All of that together. 14 people. 30 people in the village would be children. 70 of them would be adults. And only 8 of those would be over the age of 65. Don't look around. Don't do the math. It's not your friend. <laughs> In that village of 100 people, six people would own 59%, almost 60% of the wealth. 74% would have the next, 74 people would have the next 39, and 20 would share the remaining 2%. And if we match those numbers with the nationality numbers, we know that all six of those in the top bracket would be American. We are a financially anxious people. The truth is, when we look at the numbers around wealth and poverty worldwide, 56% of people are low income, and another 15 are what we would call genuinely poor. They live on $2 or less a day. But when we talk about the U.S., 56% of us are in the highest income bracket possible. We make $50 or more a day. Only about 5% of people in the U.S. fall into the bottom two income brackets. We are financially anxious people, but when you lay us alongside the rest of the world, we are a financially prosperous people. And I know there's going to be some pushback about cost of living, and, and I'm not looking for equality. All I want to point out is that fear is a tough master, and we are not beholden to it. This is much the same argument that the writer of 1 Timothy wants to make. Timothy, Timothy, and Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, are what we call the pastoral epistles because they are letters written from one pastor, an older pastor, to a young pastor, maybe an associate in his first congregation. And if you really read 1 Timothy, I think he's getting ready to do a stewardship campaign. I was feeling the love this week, I'm just saying. But, but in 1 Timothy, he writes lots of advice to this young pastor about how to structure the leadership of the congregation, about how to counsel people in various family roles, about how to get people to work through conflict. He even counsels him that um, really good preachers ought to be paid double. I was personally a fan of that verse. 
Yes, all right. Um, but we get down to the, the end of chapter 5, coming into chapter 6. He starts to talk about those who have and those who don't. And in the Roman world, that's a big divide. There really isn't a middle class. You have in abundance, or you're on the $2 a day. And both existed in the church. Both set side by side. And we know from 1 Corinthians that sometimes that didn't always go so well in congregations. I can't imagine there ever being conflict in congregations. No. <laughs> in this one, he's counseling him to be careful with those in your congregation who are wealthy, who have resources, that you, you need to be their pastor as well and that there are things you should warn them about as much as those who don't have. First Timothy is where we get the phrase, the love of money is the root of all evil. And he's a good pastor. He knows that there's a line between demonizing the love of money and money itself. Having or not having is not an indication of your goodness before God. Money in and of itself is neither good nor bad. But what 1 Timothy kind of starts to get at is that what matters is what you do with it. The way that you share it or hold it becomes the mark of where you are in your walk of discipleship. He tells him, remind those who are rich not to put their trust in finances, to trust God, and to be rich in doing good works. These are kind of the three main points we heard today in this scripture. Do not put your trust in money. Put your trust in God and be rich in doing good works. And I think from that first point kind of feeds a little bit the financial anxiety. Don't put your trust in finances because we do fear that it will be here today and gone tomorrow. You ever find yourself watching the stock market for the retirement fund or the college fund? For my generation that came of age in the midst of the financial crisis, they tell us that we will spend our entire lives about 40% behind where our parents were at our age. You think that doesn't make us financially anxious? <laughs> We've learned really fast Money comes and money goes. That is not the foundation of who you are or the determiner of your life. So we look instead for a greater purpose. You cannot trust the finances. As Christians, we know that the only sure rock of our trust is God. All we have is indeed a gift from God. Are those words familiar? The pastor says, hopefully, after repeating them every week for the last year. <laughs> All we have is indeed a gift from the hand of God. We heard a few weeks ago where Jesus told his followers, do not worry about your life. Don't you see the lilies of the field and the birds of the air? I care for them. Do you not think I care 
so much more for you. We come here and we worship because we know God has called us beloved, and that should be the foundation of our security. We should be able to stand with Paul and say, whether I have much or I have little, I am content. And I know that's a high bar, and that's why as Methodists we talk about going on to perfection. Because there are going to be days when that's easy and days when that's hard. But we know that's the rock and the ground of our future. And when that is the sure place that you stand, when you can say that God loves me and provides for me, it opens the heart to all the good works that God has prepared for you to do. Fear is indeed a tough taskmaster. When we are afraid for our lives, it breeds a mentality of scarcity, that I won't have enough. And the more I focus on how little I have, the less sure I will ever be that there's enough. When we operate out of fear and scarcity, there is never enough. But when we start from the place of God's generous blessing, there is always abundance. There is enough time, there is enough energy, there are enough resources. I think we've seen this over the last few years in this congregation. As we have begun to raise a generation in faith, we have done things that we never thought were possible. I have seen folks who were beyond being retired, Tom Fowler, and into super retirement say, I'm going to go back and spend time with youth. And I think if you ask Tom, he's gotten as much as he's given. I've seen Mike Heather, who cooks wonderful food, start sharing that gift with youth. Youth I would never have trusted with a match. <laughs> but they bake and they make chili, they cook their own dinner once a month. And their lives are changed by the stories they hear from the adults they would never have had contact with otherwise. We have seen growth in our contributions to the food basket and Brazos Port Cares. We have seen uh, new ministries open up like One Day, One Church, where we are multiplying the hours we spend in prayer for this community, it's amazing when we have stepped in and said God has been generous for us and we want to look to the next generation, the things that God has begun to birth in this people. When we start from that place of trust, we find faith and hope and kindness and generosity. As we go through this uh, campaign, there is an additional resource that's optional, but I hope you'll consider picking it up. There's an extravagant generosity devotions book. If you want one, you can talk to Rhonda. From Tuesday of this coming week, there's this beautiful image as we talk about that that we save and that that we give away. Schnazy starts to talk about the birds of the air. 
It's just often when we think about saving for ourselves, people will make the comment that you've built quite a cozy little nest, right? That idea of the birds who gather in and build their nest. But you know, there's a funny thing when you really watch birds. He says, in actual fact, the nests which birds build are not for the birds who build them, but for their young, for the next generation, for the future of the species. The hours of carrying straw and stick and mud, the days of defensive watchfulness, and the weeks of endless feeding are all for the benefit of the new ones, the young, the future. I think we have caught some of that spirit. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk a bit about our vision, both in the long term and the short term, some exciting things that are coming for next year and some successes we've had over the past year. And we invite you to be a part of that conversation. Some of you, most of you, should have gotten in the mail this week a card that said, the thing I love about my church. I hope you got one, even if you didn't bring it with you today. And even if you didn't bring it with you today, I hope you'll bring it next week and share it with us. And here's fair warning, there's another card coming in the mail this week that asks you a different question. We're not giving up on this. Bring the cards back. <laughs> we really do want to hear what you love about this church. So during the offering time, after the ushers have passed through, there'll be a basket here. You'll be invited to come and bring the thing that you love and put it in the basket and pray at the altar rail. If you don't have a card, I think the ushers have some in the narthex. Next week, we'll bring our prayers for the congregation. And you'll be able to read what people love about the church on this banner just outside the door. See, we are a people founded in trust, sure in our hope of the resurrection we have in Jesus Christ, and we know that all that we have comes from the hand of God. And so I am excited to hear what you love to see God doing in this place and to dream about what God might do next as we explore the ways he makes us extravagantly generous. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.